welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. I'm Justin. And I'm Rob. And this is our review of Red Dawn, starring Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Mark, I put Charlie Sheen, but I meant Emilio Estevez, Leah Thompson, Jennifer Grey, Garrett Dalton, Brad Savage, Powers Booth, Ron O'Neill, William Smith, Doug Toby, and Harry Dean fucking Stanton. Directed by John Milius, with a script by Milius and Kevin Reynolds. Released in 1984 on a budget of $17 million, it made $38 million at the box office. Not only was it a touchstone movie for people of our generation, but not from touchstone pictures, for a lot of the 80s talent that was in the movie, it was also the very first movie to get a PG rating. Now, for those of you who have listened to the show, you might recognize the dulcet tones of one of our guests, but for those that don't know Rob, please introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your various projects and your history with the movie. Well, of course, I'm Rob the Cinema Drunkie, uh, ho- the, one of the hosts of the Cinema Drunkies, along with my brother from another Mac the All-Star, uh, have uh, very uh, exciting things going on with that show. We're a little bit of a hiatus right now, but uh, we got some stuff coming along the way very soon. Uh, I was feeling a little burnt out there, so I took a little break, but uh, now I'm back at it. Uh, of course, I got my writings over at um, uh, ultimateactionmovies.com. And of course, I'm over at uh, Bulletproof Action. I got some stuff over there, as well as actionflix.com. And just various stuff, you know, all over. And that's what I got going on as far as uh, my, you know, my, my, you know, work ethic and all that stuff. The, if you could call it that, I don't know, whatever. I'm just babbling. <laughs> but um, to go into Red Dawn, um, I've been very upfront about a channel that uh, used to be uh, used to be on in New York called WPIX Channel 11. And WPIX Channel 11 is basically one of the foundations uh, that raised me as a movie goer and a movie watcher. It's basically um, made me the film fan I am today. And uh, they used to show stuff that um, that's become some of my all-time favorite movies to this day. Like, that was the first time I ever saw The Wraith, also starring Charlie Sheen. Um, saw Dolph Lundgren's The Punisher there for the first time. Saw The Gate for the first time on uh, on that channel. I Come in Peace. And uh, this was one of the movies I saw for the first time on that channel as well. Because they used to show this movie a lot. Um, God bless the program director on that channel because they used to show certain movies all the time, like uh, Friday the 13th Part 4 and 6. Like, they rarely showed any others in the series. They only showed, like, really 4 and 6, which was weird. But uh, it, it makes sense because both of those two are my favorites in the, the series. So um, it all worked out in the end, I guess. But yeah, Red Dawn is a film that uh, I, I remember uh, I was on a podcast of uh, buddy uh, Scott Wiley over at Action Addicts. And we were talking about Invasion USA, which is basically almost kind of th- the same plot in, th- in this one, even though that one's a little bit more cartoonish, comic bookish. Um, now that I consider it, because for a while, I always thought Red Dawn was more like the preposterous movie, because there's a lot of like preposterous masculine energy in Red Dawn. 
uh, uh, pointing out to, to, to the scene, for example, uh, Harry Dean Stanton screaming, avenge me to his sons. Is, oh, is, we will definitely get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you, I was just like, this is some preposterous bullshit, you know what I'm saying, in comparison to Invasion USA. Because it, 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 it treats the, the whole scenario like a matter of fact, like almost like docudrama. You know, like, like this is really going to happen, you know. And, of course, Milius, you know, in his weird fucking twisted mind, <laughs> you know, he probably thought that. Um, but then uh, over the years and shit, as, as you see things happen in America, you realize, ah, I don't think it's that preposterous, you know what I'm saying? Because I could see, you know, motherfuckers screaming out, avenge me to their sons and shit as they believe they're about to be held behind fence lines and all that shit. And I'm just like, ah, you know, whatever. Is, I still, I still enjoy it greatly, though. It's you know, I don't take it too seriously at all because it's just, it's one of those movies where it's just like you really just have to just accept it as it is and just be like, yeah, this is this is preposterous bullshit, but it's fun, you know, as it goes along, and just an incredible cast of youngsters who we would grow to be, you know, love, especially you know the late great Patrick Swayze, you know, wonderful you know performer who I missed to this day you know and i will continue to miss because i just love patrick swayze and um you know charlie sheen c thomas howell leah thompson jennifer gray just incredible cast you know wonderful direction by john milius and just altogether great film and and i love it to death i hate to interrupt you rob but you keep saying charlie sheen because i screwed up and put charlie sheen it's emilio estevez no it's charlie sheen is it yes yeah it, it's sheen right. yeah okay. yeah so emilio's hair is lighter and yeah. um, there's like a Sheen's character in this is the oilier of the two brothers. <laughs> That's, very, That's very true. All right, so I'm just gonna leave that in because I I'm looking at our, our document right now and I do have Charlie Sheen written down and like throughout my thing I talk about Charlie throughout my notes I talk about Charlie Sheen. I don't know why at the last second I said no you idiot That's Emilio Estevez. <laughs> because it would have been better if it was Estevez because Charlie yeah. Sheen's a scumbag. Yeah, well, I guess because he's. I guess because he's wearing the Letterman jacket, and I just keep thinking, oh, like in Breakfast Club, obviously. Yeah. Well, 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 they actually wanted Emilio, but um, he 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 was unavailable, and he suggested his you know his brother Charlie, who was trying to get into acting at that time. So this is like, I think one of Charlie's first, if not you know, very first roles was this I, pre or post Outsiders. This this was post Outsiders. Yeah. So, so that's why they want. I think they wanted Emilio because they saw the you know you know chemistry he had with Swayze. You know, oh, they could play brothers, but Emilio was um was unavailable. So he was like, yeah, you use my brother Charlie. You know, he's he's good. He wants to get into acting and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, then and that's set us on the path to to get um the the warrior blood king himself. <laughs> well, before we start talk, talking about our tiger blood, I have to introduce the other voice you hear on the podcast is not familiar to our listeners this is our new friend justin justin since this is your first time on the show why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself and let us know what you're up to what your deal is um and let us know if your history if any with red dawn all right thank you for having me um i have been writing about film semi-professionally since 2016 more so in the past few years i'm the film editor at the chicago-based film site the spool where at the moment I'm taking the lead on getting our filmmaker of the month series back up and running after a hiatus. This month it's Jane Campion. Next month is going to be exciting and about as far from Jane Campion as possible. Um, 
I also write about comics at AIPT, and I do I do essays for Neotext. Made my name there with a piece on Spider-Man and Twin Peaks, and I'm currently working on something I'm really, really excited to share, which I, I, I'm doing a comparative piece on, of all things, Angels in America and Chainsaw Man. Chainsaw Man sounds interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, but if I start talking about Chainsaw Man, then this will become a podcast about Chainsaw Man. So I think I'd better stick to Red Dawn for the time being. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a paper on Milvius, specifically Conan the Barbarian, in my first year of graduate school. I'd known Conan, well, from a disgraced internet comedian, and then I saw out the movie myself and loved it. And in the course of doing some work on Milius, I decided I should see Red Dawn for this. And, you know, it's a deeply goofy movie that waffles between being thrilling and insightful and being the sour sort of goofy, where it's just like, ugh, man. Uh, trying to find the right words to describe the weird, like, even by this, like, even knowing Milius is Milius, there are these weird moments of jingoism that if I understand the history of the production correctly, he was kind of required by the studio to put in. That wouldn't and, surprise me a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it, and it really, really sharply contrasts with how just plain downbeat this big old jingoistic 80s thriller can get. Like, it is admirably bleak for what was meant to be some good old, fa- what, what was at least sold as good old fashioned America. Exclamation yeah. point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Well, we will definitely get into how bleak this movie is when I go through my overly long and, and needlessly complex plot summary, which is what I'm known for on this show. As for me, my history with Red Dawn is I really don't remember a time without Red Dawn in my life. I was a grew up a child of cable. I've seen Red Dawn probably a hundred times, if not more, in pieces or in total. It is uh, not necessarily one of my favorite movies, but it is one of the most American movies I can think of. Uh, when I used to have a, a di- when I used to have my own website, I did a special Fourth uh, of July tribute to America, and this was one of the movies that I made a point <laughs> to review for my Fourth of July tribute to America was to make sure I put up the most American possible movie that I could think of next to Invasion USA, which we'd already written about at the site at that point. And one of the things you'll know here on Filmstrip is we've done probably 300 movies. We've done over 300 movies. This is like episode 300 and I don't know, 15 something ish. Nice. It's a, it's a lot, but uh, we don't usually repeat ourselves or go back over the same ground if at all possible. So when I was like, how have we not done Red Dawn? I was like, well, we, we, we have to rectify this. And it's funny that Rob mentioned uh, Invasion USA, which I'm also a big fan of. I'd never really noticed or thought about the parallels between the two until watching Red Dawn again for this viewing. Because I'd watched uh, Invasion USA for my friend Jerry Davila's podcast, Totally Rad Christmas, an 80s-themed Christmas podcast. When I was like, you know, Invasion USA is a Christmas movie. He was like, come on the show. we got to talk about this. Now that we've talked about our history with the movie, let's talk about the movie itself. I will go through the plot summary, which is entirely too long. Because this movie has a lot of plot for less than a two-hour runtime. It's a dense hour and 50. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Full of incident, you might say. (laughs) And we will, and I will go through it, and I will inevitably leave something out 
and yet it'll feel like I've talked for like 15 minutes, at least to me. The opening crawl says it all. Europe disarms, NATO collapses, Mexico because it becomes a communist state, and the Soviet Union starts to aggressively expand after a bad wheat harvest in Ukraine. Gee, Soviet Union meddling in Ukraine, that, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Uh, the U.S. is isolated, alone, bereft of allies, and a plum target for the picking. The USSR, along with Cuban and Nicaraguan soldiers, literally fall out of the sky onto the tiny mountain town of South Park, Colorado. Uh, I mean, Calumet, Colorado. <laughs> Interrupted, a local high school teacher pokes his head out to find out what's going on and eats a lead salad for his troubles. Oh my god, they killed Kenny. Or rather, they killed Mr. Teasdale who you might know as being the police captain in Last Action Hero or as the fire-breathing Hayden in 48 Hours. That kicks off a frenzy of action as students attempt to flee, are gunned down or captured, or in the case of Matt Eckert, played by Charlie Sheen, escape from the clutches of the Soviets with whoever he and his brother Jed, Patrick Swayze, can drag or throw into the back of a pickup truck. The boys and their friends head to the local general store and stock up on bullets, guns, and suits because this is America before hitting the mountains to hide out. The group consists of Jed, Robert, Matt, Daryl, the mayor's son, and a shit weasel, Danny, and Aardvark. Once the food runs low, the Eckerts and Robert, played by the masterful C. Thomas Howell, and he's great in this movie, return to town to find out that Calumet has been taken over by the commies. Most of the town's troublemakers, gun owners, and general red-blooded patriots are being kept in a concentration camp located at the local drive-in. The boys see their father, the one-man wrecking crew that is Harry Dean Stanton, and after a few heartfelt moments where he talks about raising them roughly, Harry Dean Stanton tells his sons, Avenge me! The boys get more supplies from the Masons, one of whom is veteran cowboy actor and all-around badass Ben Johnson, the guy who took a year off of Hollywood to become a rodeo champion. <laughs> it turns out the situation is worse than they thought as World War III has broken out and they're stuck behind enemy lines with only a radio to keep track of things. Robert finds out his father got killed to be an example for those who helped the partisans. Mason offers the boys support and in exchange he wants protection for his granddaughters Tony and Erica played by Jennifer Grey and Leah Thompson, respectively. As the kids continue to avoid detection after ambushing a Russian patrol, including a pretty gnarly close-up murder by Jed on a Russian soldier not much older than him, the Soviets take notice and start turning over rocks to find out who those gorillas are. An interview with shit-ass Daryl's shit-ass dad, Lane Smith, the a.k.a. the mayor, throws the Eckerts and some of the other families under the bus. So the Russians start killing civilians, including Harry Dean Stanton, and that in turn forces the sad, angry kids to become the Wolverines a resistance group dedicated to killing as many communists as possible. We basically get a solid five minutes of murdering montage. The guerrilla efforts of the Wolverines are beginning to get noticed. Also noticed is a crash-landed American fighter jet containing none other than Powers friggin' Booth, because this movie was missing a resident badass after Harry Dean Stanton left. We get a neat cute between him and Leah Thompson, then he goes back to camp to fill the kids on on just how badly the war is going, and how many field trip destinations have been nuked or otherwise compromised. The Rockies on one side, the Mississippi on the other, and the middle, Soviet armies. So that leads to more attacks and more Wolverine markers on destroyed Russian armor. Slava Wolverines, I guess. They're going to work, deciding to attack the concentration camp with Powers Booth's help. Their efforts to fight it back are going well, but spring and the help of Green Berets is a long time coming. They move to get Tanner, that's Powers Booth, to the front line and the real war, and he offers to take Jed and company with him back to free America. Then the Soviet tank comes rolling up to where they're all hiding, and the group find themselves on the wrong side of a tank battle. Tanner and Aardvark get killed, and seasonal depression seems to take over the surviving Wolverines. Meanwhile, the Russians bring in the expert Spetsnats to hunt down and exterminate the Wolverines where they live. 
to get a little help from Daryl, who got caught sneaking back into town and tortured until he swallowed a tracking device. Daryl and a captured Russian prisoner get executed by Jed and an emotionless Robert who definitely has all the PTSD. The group find two boxes of dropped food after a convoy stops and pulls off in front of them suspiciously, and the group jumps on it because they're starving. However, it's a trap, and a helicopter gunship sweeps in and kills Tony and Robert. Score one for Admiral Akbar. That's two dead friends too many, and Jed and Matt have decided to attack the Soviet headquarters of Calumet while sending Erica and Danny to make a run for the planes and the freedom of America. Jed and Matt go full video game, a two-man assault force that wreaks havoc in Soviet Colorado. A watchtower gets blown up. There's a guy running around on fire. The Russian general dies in an RPG attack. The evil KGB colonel shoots Matt as the brothers try to make a low-speed escape on the back of an equipment train. Then Jed guns down the Colonel Cowboy style. Bellow, the sympathetic colonel, has the two dead to rights, but he's seen enough senseless death, so he waves the two brothers on. Jed carries Matt back to the park where they played in as kids for one last trip before both die in the cold. Erica and Danny make it back to free America. Flash forward for a while, and Partisan Rock is now a war memorial dedicated to the Wolverines. The American flag flies, and heroic music plays over black and white publicity stills of all of our heroes as credits roll. As we've talked about, they cram a lot of stuff into an hour and 50 minutes. And I, I, would, just, I, would, I would just like to point out that uh, it, go, it goes, what I was saying, with that... Um, compared to what I said and Justin said about this movie being goofy and preposterous, how all three of us as as uh, Ron is going through his synapses, we're all trying to stifle our laughter as per how it gets more preposterous as he goes along. <laughs> yep. Just builds and builds and builds until, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much the Eckert brothers star in Grand Theft Auto in Occupied Colorado. <laughs> Also, yeah. man, Soviet Colorado. What a set. What a phrase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought that was pretty good. Um, the only movie more preposterous than this one is the 2004 remake of Red Dawn that presupposes that North Korea could conquer the United States. Wasn't it originally China, and they realized, oh wait, maybe we shouldn't take off one of the biggest movie-going audiences in the world? Yes, yes, that's exactly was. what happened. And if it was yeah. China, it would have been a better movie. No, it was, uh, th- that's Amelia's thing too, because, uh, he also wrote, what was it, the, the video game Homefront, where, uh, South, uh, South Korea was, um, the enemy in that game, which is basically a recreation of Red Dawn, because there are many references to Wolverines in that game Homefront. Now, I'm completely unfamiliar with that game. Is it worth checking out for? It, it, I, I thought it was good too. And I was so hyped because I beat that game really quickly and I was like, yeah. And then, um, uh, my brother Mac, the all-star was like, yeah, that game is easy as shit, dude. You know, because he's a gamer and I'm not. So, and I felt very proud of myself. So when he was like, yeah, that game is easy as shit. It sucks. And I'm like, oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks for the confidence booster. This is, I'm never gaming again. <laughs> I thought it was all right, though. I thought it was all right. It was kind of, there was like a period there where they had really big names in like not quite triple A titles. You had Michael Madsen and okay. I'm, Grand, Grand Theft Auto is triple again, but you had like Michael Madsen in one of the Grand Theft Autos that got that was like when the series moved from big to really big, and I want to say there was like the there was like some kind of ill-fated Reservoir Dogs video game that may or may not have ever been finished. I think it did ultimately arrive and was immediately dismissed. Hmm. I, that sounds pretty familiar. The idea of a Reservoir Dogs game, but uh, might work better as a visual novel, really. But yeah. Now, 
I have to ask, this movie has one of my absolute all-time favorite cold openings from the 1980s. The moment you see paratroopers landing in this town of what looks like 50 people, it's like, oh, okay, I see exactly what kind of movie this is going to be. Like, we get the teacher who goes out there, and he just says, hey, what's going on, you guys? And then he just immediately eats, like, 50 bullets. And he's like, oh, I get where you're going, movie. And then they turn the machine gun on a crowded classroom full of children and just open fire. And it's like, oh, you're definitely this kind of movie. Yeah, like yeah. Extended close up on a very dead kid. Yeah, I was about to say that. It's like he he shoots it. They shoot up the the classroom, and everybody ducks for cover, and you just see this one kid just laying there dead on the windowsill, and it's just like Jesus Christ already, already. We're PG thirteen. Hell of a rating that. Yeah, yeah. The very first PG thirteen mo- movie, and with good reason. And I'm actually surprised it didn't end up in horror because. It's a movie about murdering teenagers or trying to murder teenagers. Yeah. Well, it was the 80s. Uh, teenagers were yet were little adults at that point. I think you could say you could easily say had, had this movie as is been released today, it would definitely get an R rating. Oh, no, no, no question. Yeah, it would definitely get an R. Yeah, no question about it. You know, we talked a little bit uh, in our history of the movie and, and in the introduction about... Uh, <laughs> our, our appreciation or interest or confusion by the politics of John Millius, who is one of those people that I think makes Oliver Stone look sane and predictable. <laughs> Hilariously, they worked together on Conan. Oh, they, yeah, they, right. they were apparently very good, apparently were or are very good friends. Um, that makes a depressing amount of sense. <laughs> I mean, one of them is clearly a conspiracy theorist, and the other one clearly is also a conspiracy theorist, or at least a uh, a firm believer in the intrusion of government onto the rights of citizens to own firearms. Because I feel like the moment the KGB lands and takes over the town, they immediately go to the local gun shop, and we're like, "All right, pull all the gun forms. We're going to round up everybody in this town that is like." armed and or owns a firearm and I feel like that's 100% John Milius being like, the government shouldn't track who buys guns. Yeah. Yeah, also, I can see it. Also, you have that, that that great moment that always makes me laugh where you get the bumper sticker, you can have my gun when you pry it from my cold dead fingers. And then the, the camera pans over to literally that happening as the Russian pries the gun from the man's cold dead fingers. <laughs> Now, like, my my take my whole thing on Milius is I think he re- I think he meant that to be a joke. Like I think he realized how ridiculous that statement is. Yeah. And yet, and yet he's also like the biggest gun nut in Hollywood. Uh, it, did you see that documentary that came out about him six or seven years ago? Now I think it was just called Milius. He likes to style himself a Zen anarchist, which. <sighs> The guy's yeah. politic. The guy. The, the best word for that guy for that man's politics is incoherent. <laughs> of course like, it is. He wrote this movie. Of course it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's just like what, part of what I find so so gosh darn fascinating about this film is the uh, just the total clash between red blooded American teens taken to the commies. And then we get numerous scenes showing that the commies are, in fact, you know, people. And that um, Colonel Bellow, played by the um, great Ron O'Neill. Do I have that right? Ron O'Neill? Yeah, you do. Uh, is, like, far and away the 
most sensible adult outside of Powers Booth. He's just like, I don't want to be here. This is a terrible idea. We are brutalizing these people to no to, to no effect. This is not gonna this is not gonna help our conquest. I miss my wife. The revolution is dead. Fuck this. Yeah, <laughs> which is really crazy. And I can't help but feel like that's informed by Milius's experiences in Vietnam. He's famously a Vietnam veteran. I want to say he was like a combat photographer type, one of those guys, or like a war correspondent or something. But um, he makes a point to humanize the Russian troops as much as possible. Like, yeah. it seems like, especially in the very beginning when you get the first kill, the those three guys are just there taking taking pictures and doing sightseeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then and, the and, guy that Jed shoots is basically Jed's age. Yeah. And neither of them is comfortable with what's happening in that scene. Yeah. Uh, there is a fantastic moment with Swayze and the performer playing um, the Soviet soldier where it just becomes immediately clear that yes, Swayze's about to execute this man. There is there is no getting out of it, and after, neither of them is happy about it, but they have to accept it. Yeah. And I, I actually took, like, I had a note on the action where it's like, I can take or leave the big heroic Wolverines montages of them gunning down faceless Soviet goons, but the intimate moments are such good filmmaking and such good action. Yeah. The the the, the moment where cuz what I like is that Jed um Patrick Swayze's character like he immediately takes charge and you know he's like he becomes like the leader obviously because he's older than the rest of them and um like you know he's like when they're all like after like all the parents are executed and uh they're all like you know obviously sorrowful you know what i'm saying they're crying and stuff he's like don't cry hold it back you know use it and, and all that stuff but he, he's really just you, you sense he's really just you know compensating for the fact that he really is scared just as the rest of them when uh after robert executes daryl and, and he cries to himself like at, at the loss of his innocence and it's like those are the moments i appreciate you know where it's just like you know, you take the time to just show that he's just as scared. You know, he's just trying to cover up the fact that he's just as scared as the rest of them. But someone has to be the leader of this group. I mean, he was obviously ready to let Powers Booth be the, be the leader. You know, obviously Powers Booth is the most experienced, uh, you know, soldier amongst them because they're just kids. I love that moment where uh, he's telling them the plan and they're like, what's this? What's that? You know, and he's just like, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, like, remind, I'm dealing with kids here. But then, like, you know, it's, it's back to Jed, and Jed's just like, you know, I, I'm really not ready for this. And when that moment where he's just looking at him and uh, his his childhood pictures, and he starts crying to himself, and it's like, he's doing it alone, you know what I'm saying? This is all built up in the fact that uh, he, he's, he's afforded this moment by himself to cry to himself because he can't do it in front of them because, you know, he's basically shown himself to be the leader. He can't cry in front of them. So he has to do it alone, and it's just incredibly sad and you know i love moments like that in movies you know aside from like you said justin where it's just like montages of uh gunning down faceless soviet goons and it's just wolverines <laughs> you know that's all that's all cool and all that stuff but like th those quieter moments is just what, like where the movie just places like you know the, the, it, milius is a, is a smart guy even though he's incredibly fucking crazy 
But um, like those moments like that, it was just like, yeah, he knows what he's doing. He, 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 he's a smart guy. He's sneaking those moments in there as they're, you know, the studio is pushing him to be like this fucking like, yeah, make him more patriotic. You know what I'm saying? Like make him more American. America, fuck yeah. You know what I'm saying? All that bullshit. <laughs> you know? Oh, mercy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked that that we got Ron O'Neill playing this dimensional, sympathetic Cuban revolutionary at a t- like 84 I-, I was born in 91 so i am about as old as the fall of the soviet union when did the when did the thaw between gorbachev and reagan like really really start because i think it would have had to been like just after this came out and the idea of a great big old american soviet war became fun isn't the right word because nuclear annihilation but yeah became something less wouldn't this be a chance for moments of grand American triumph? It really kicked off in like 1988, 1989, especially once the uh, Berlin Wall fell, which is the thing I remember watching on TV. And thank you for making me feel old as hell. Really appreciate that. (laughs) If it makes you feel better, I live with a roommate who is about a decade younger than I am. And there have been times when I'm just like, well, I'm going to go crumble in the dust. (laughs) It only gets worse, man. They just yeah. time accelerates but yeah it's this is really kind of a late this is really at like the peak not even at the peak but this is towards the end of the, of the peak of aggression between the u.s and the soviet union we're a couple years away from the start pact where everyone starts to reduce their nuclear weapons yeah and um but it's still at this point it's still a very real thing that is in the cultural zeitgeist i mean when I was a kid, if I wasn't shooting Nazis, I was shooting Soviets in my childhood games. And uh, as a child of the 80s, all of my games were mostly me shooting or, or blowing up things. Um, not in real life, but, you know, with toy machine guns and stuff. Um, yeah. Probably because I saw this movie when I was like seven or eight, and it really screwed me up for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, you know, teaching kids empathy on the other hand wolverines you know it's funny because like all the stuff with empathy and and uh, sympathetic villains and stuff just flew right over my head i did not care for it at all but that montage where it's just everyone holding guns and firing guns and yelling wolverines and all that stuff that was exactly on my level and meanwhile as an adult i agree with you guys uh that i saw Every time I watch it as an adult, I see more things that hit me on a different level than the things I originally loved this movie for that also make me appreciate this movie more. That, but that's what, that's, uh, that happens a lot. You know, when, when you watch movies as a kid, you know, a lot of stuff flies over your head. And then, you know, as you get older, your, your taste matures, you know, and, and you start seeing movies differently. Like, I remember as, as a kid, I loved Armageddon. And then as a young adult, I hated it. And then now, like, I kind of love it again, you know, even though I know it's incredibly flawed, you know, in, in certain spots, you know. It, but it's like, yeah, like, you, you watch this movie and he's like, yeah, get them Wolverines, get those bastards. But then, like, you know, as an adult, you realize you appreciate the, the moments that that they, they show the empathy, you know, and the sympathetic nature of the characters and the stuff. It's more appealing to you 
as an adult than it is as a kid, you know what I'm saying? Because you get over that, you know, crazy gun nut bullshit, you know, as a kid. Because they really promoted all that kind of shit as a kid. Like, I remember... Oh, man. We, 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 uh, me and Mac did an episode on RoboCop 2, and we were talking about how, yeah. like, you know, they, they, they promoted that shit. You know, they made a cartoon of RoboCop. That's so fucked up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, they had a cartoon of Conan, which I guess is a little more understandable because you can have, like... I think there was like an evil sorcerer, and Conan was fighting to save his people. Yeah, um, I, I actually love that cartoon, by the way. <laughs> I've heard good things. I've heard good things. But, but somehow, like the one that's baffling to me is the Highlander cartoon, where oh, they the cartoon was great. They, yeah. I, speaking as someone whose parents loved the loved the Highlander television series, and I have vague memories of them watching it in the evenings. And as someone who adores the first Christopher Lambert Highlander film, I am so sincerely fascinated by that what's it of a cartoon. That is just, you built a show for children around a story whose premise involves multiple decapitations and somehow <laughs> cut the decapitations. Yeah. It's like, how does, how does this work? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You obviously can't cut off heads in a, in a, a cartoon series, but go nuts, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I think you can do it like, you could probably get away with it. Get away with it these days, given the success of, you know, starting the widespread success of Jap- of imported Japanese anime, and then cartoon, and then action cartoons made in the U.S. or in Europe or in or in a or in Asia that understand that kids are in fact capable of handling heavy stuff. You probably still have to have like all the decapitations in shadow, but. I think you could get a quality Highlander cartoon today. It would last for about five episodes because people would wonder, why the hell did we green like car- a cartoon about Highlander? This, this franchise hasn't been relevant in years. Yeah. Oh, but, Netflix, Netflix will bring it back. It's, <laughs> it's out there somewhere. They'll their animators. Yeah. And Which will bring anything will, back. <laughs> it, and the fan base will be terrifying and violent. Yeah. As always, well, but that's the appropriate fan base for yep. something like Highlander. Yep. The oh god, the I'm, just, I'm just like uh, now, now if with it, more if sword Red Dawn bites. had come out in the late '80s, would there have been a Red Dawn Saturday morning cartoon? Uh, maybe I could see it happening. Yeah, I could. Like, I could er- definitely see it happening. Er- like there, there's a whole bunch of lasers, and Ron O'Neill comes back as Colonel Bella for one episode. Yeah, yeah, he would have been like a fucking uh, like a uh, Cobra Commander type, <laughs> or he would have been like the one friendly Soviet. Okay, so we've talked about the kind of weird tone of this movie, where it's like a conflict between the jingoist rah rah kill the Reds eighties and the the character driven more serious moments and the stuff we've noticed uh, you know, as adults versus when we were kids. But one thing I've always noticed in this movie, and one thing I've always thought about, was just even before I had a concept of who Harry Dean Stanton was, when he shows up in this movie, he gets like five minutes of it, and immediately makes us care about him and his family. Like he shows up, he gives this speech that is just knocks it out of the park for me, that killed it for me as a child, and that continues to resonate with me as an adult. Uh, my dad's been gone for six years now. But, man, watching this speech, my dad looked nothing like Harry Dean Stanton. My dad actually looked a little bit like Elvis. Having watched this speech like, and thinking about my dad in this moment, I could definitely hear my dad telling me to go out and murder a bunch of KGB agents as revenge for his death. Yeah, I mean, like, one thing Milius has always been the undisputed champ of is 
terrific meaty monologues. I mean, he wrote the USS Indianapolis speech for Spielberg in Jaws. Mm-hmm. He definitely wrote, or at the, at the very least, he played a key part in getting Martin Sheen to nail the Flagstaff, I'm still in Flagstaff monologue in Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And he's got, you know, the Crom, I have never prayed to you before, um, prayer in Conan. The dude has a knack for writing speeches that actors can just make a goddamn meal of. And if ever there was someone who could make a meal out of anything, it was Harry Dean. Yeah. Yeah. Harry Dean definitely was the king of that shit. And that kind of sets up like the gravity of the movie for me. It, it, it gives it, even before, you know, I paid attention to this kind of stuff, it, it gave it an immediate emotional grounding. Cause you know, everybody's, you know, most kids have parents and we know, how much we care about our parents and like our parents. And, and you, even if you don't like your parents, you always think about, well, what's going to happen when they're gone. And man, just for whatever reason, watching this movie now, that really hit me pretty hard between this and the way that as he's giving that speech and he's telling the boys not to cry, like he, he looks like he's got a tear in his eye. We see that again later with Colonel Bellow. When he's when he's uh, facing down with the Eckert boys at the end of the movie, we see him just kind of like holding back that emotion, but he's got that little tear in the corner of his eye, a little bit of wetness there. It's just what? those are two of like the best performances in a movie that, like you said, he, he makes a meal out of he makes a meal out of this monologue, and all the actors when they get like when they get stuff to do other than run around and shoot guns, they they really get to sink their teeth into some pretty good stuff. I think. They do. I mean, I don't think there's, like, I don't really think there's a weak link in the ensemble as a whole. Mm. Um, there are certainly char- there are certainly performers who don't get as much to do because their characters aren't as richly drawn as, say, the Eckert boys or Bella. Like, there's the, there's the, there's the slimy Russian general who lacks Bella's human humanity or the Kate or the Spetsnaz operator's pragmatic ruthlessness and his job is like, I am very evil and look vaguely like the current president of Russia. And he's just like, well, you're evil. Moving on. <laughs> of course, of um, course, they picked William Smith to play that role. So, <laughs> which, you know, is, is perfect. If you want someone who's just unequivocally evil, you know, and, and slimy, you, who do you get? You get William Smith. <laughs> Speaking of evil and slimy, we're definitely going to do Hell Comes to Frogtown on this podcast at some point. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of William Smith. Hell comes to Frogtown. I know it only by reputation. I am intrigued and terrified. I, I, I've seen it, and that is 100% a Rob movie. That, that is a movie that was made for me, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> before I even knew it. Hell comes to Frogtown is, is pure Rob cinema. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy movie. Um, it makes this look like nuanced and, and grounded and realistic. <laughs> and when your movie makes Red Dawn look sedate by comparison. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, the I think that's the point. I think Bello, one of the things I noticed about this movie on this watch is that these kids aren't necessarily friends with each other. They're just whoever they could literally, the Eckerts could literally grab and drag to safety. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they're friends with Robert, but I feel like they're not friends with Daryl or Aardvark, and they're definitely not friends with the girls because they don't even know the girls. But, yeah, and I, I, the girls might not even be from. Um, they're not. They no. They're. I think they escaped from like Denver or somewhere, yeah. and, and barely made it out to Calumet and faced some horrible traumas along the way. Um, yep. Which uh, Ben Johnson 
talks about but doesn't tell us about, but we know what that means. Yeah, for- it's, heav- it's heavily implied too during the the, the nighttime campfire scene where uh, Charlie Sheen tells Leah Thompson, "What's up your ass?" and she obviously takes incredible offense to that. So it's like there's a heavy implication there. What could have happened to her? And it's just like Jesus Christ. Yeah, and it's getting into the dissonance again. It's like so much of the so much so much of the montage sequences really lean into the Wolverines being the baddest of bad, the coolest of cool by eighties guerrilla standards. And then Milius has someone with an available to be like, these are teenagers. They should not be killing this easily. And in the grand scheme of the of the American Soviet War, they're doing fuck all and as a reward they get post-traumatic stress disorder and in one case becoming a full-on monster like in the case of robert of course of course the the, the one who becomes the monster is named robert <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say though that uh, I, I love c thomas howell's performance in this by the way oh he's fucking fantastic yeah. it's just chilling yeah the, the, the way he just like did that whole scene where you know or oh, or oh, that hate's gonna burn you up inside kid keeps me warm and it's like jesus you know he's full-on gone you know yep. yeah and, and like from what little we see of him early on he's get, getting to like yeah these kids didn't really know each other and like he's the one kid who gets to have a semi-proper goodbye to his dad before they run into harry dean stanton and it's like oh yeah your father was brutally executed by the soviets because he loved you yeah that breaks him and he does not come back from that yeah yeah he's he's like that that is the snap is right there to where he becomes like where, where he's the one who executes Daryl, you know? Yeah. And, and like they're there like everybody else is even appalled by that. And he's just like, what? You know, like when Daryl literally crawls to him like and then bleeds on him and it's just like, what have you done? And everybody's just looking at him like just terrified. And he's just like, what? What? What did I do wrong? And it's just like, yeah, there's there's just nothing left to Robert at all. Yeah. And and you know, it's weird. You've got this disparate group of kids who have to come together and work together. And I feel like the Nicaraguan, Cuban, Russian alliance is also like a disparate group of people who don't really know each other and don't really get along, but are working nope. together for this common cause. Because, like, tell me one thing Colonel Bello has in common with eat with either uh, the uh, KGB colonel or the creepy looking Russian general who's like a Nosferatu that grew a beard. <laughs> Oh man, I would love to to see John Milius's Nosferatu. That would be that would be something. Yeah, yeah. Count Orlock might get a law. I mean, like Herzog gave a noted actual monster Klaus Kinski some pretty great dialogue to chew on. He has Nosferatu, but oh man, <laughs> John Milius's Nosferatu. That would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Also a good chance that Nosferatu gets gunned down and or decapitated with a giant fucking sword. I, I, so. I can see that the, uh, the the sword, yes, definitely. Uh, he, 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 Orlock is getting decapitated with a giant yeah, fucking want- sword. <laughs> no, I, what I want is Count Orlock servicing a belt-fed machine gun. Treating <laughs> <laughs> it like a line of tanks. Like carrying it in his coffin a la Django? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 well, this podcast completely fucking derailed. <laughs> nah, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is how it goes. This is how it goes. Anytime me, anytime me and Rob are recording, anytime Jay's not in the room to be the adult to keep it on the 
<laughs> Everything goes horribly wrong yeah. in hilarious uh, ways. Like, I mean, you realize, of course, that I'm going to have to commission fan belt. art of Count Orlock with it, with his belt-fed machine gun. Yeah, with, his, with his casket-mounted belt-fed machine gun. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You got to get the theme song to Orlock. Orlock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Score by Tangerine Dream. Oh man. With. Nah. With, with Leah Thompson as the ingenue who probably decapitates Orlock. Um, who plays the Who plays the useless husband? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, you you, you got to stop because now I want to see this fucking movie. <laughs> now I'm sitting now, now I'm sitting here like, oh damn! I wish we had gotten this motherfucking movie. <laughs> John Milius is Nosferatu. <laughs> I'm 100 percent on board with that. We get the. We'll get uh, Ron. We'll, we'll we'll go back in time and get Ron O'Neill to be uh, uh, Van Helsing. Van Helsing, I guess. Oh yes. yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Absolutely, but, yes. But, but in the clothes from Superfly, he's got to be in the clothes from Superfly. <laughs> and we got and we got to get, get my boy a wig so he can have the right hair. The, the first movie that like the new Mystery Science Theater re- revival did was Santo versus Dracula, and if you can, if, if Santo can invent time machine. Ron O'Neill Van Helsing dressed like Superfly can have a time machine to come back in time and fight Count Orlock. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Okay. This is this, this has been a great uh, diversion, and this is all going to stay in the podcast because I think it's funny, and who cares what anybody? But else we wants. should probably get back to Red Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, well, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk briefly about uh, uh, Lane Smith, who plays the mayor. Uh, who uh, you would recognize, as, or who I recognized immediately as, oh, crap, that's the dad from Son-in-Law. Son-in-Law is one of those movies I've seen eight times for no good reason, except <laughs> possibly Carla Gugino, and because you couldn't avoid um, Pauly Shore. Pauly Shore in the, the late 80s, early 90s. But, I'm uh, so glad I was an infant. <laughs> yeah, you missed you missed out on so much uh, wheezing of the juice. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, one of the things that struck me about uh, that scene where Daryl is meeting with Bello is, number one, Bello is openly contemptuous of him and sickened by him because he's just a, a politician yeah. and he's super sarcastic. That's where you really feel that Bello is actually like a revolutionary who believes the lines he's been fed yeah. versus like uh, the the general who I keep wanting to call Rostov, but is not Rostov. <laughs> it's like a, an associate of Rostov's. It's, it's Rostov's uncle. Who, uh, who is more of a politician than a military leader versus like the uh, the KGB colonel who also has a name, but I don't know what it is. He's just. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like you break it down, you've got the scumbag general who mainly seems to into invasion because it gives him a chance to, to have people murdered, and he really likes murdering people. Yes. You've got the KGB officer or the, the Spetsnaz officer. Who does not mind murdering people, but is ruthlessly pragmatic about it, and whose second big scene after he's introduced is basically going, you dumbasses, you've just made this harder for us. Yeah, in front of the general who's ostensibly his boss, no less. Which is how you know this guy just just is at Zack Snyder levels of not caring. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's a that's a call that was a callback I made just to make Rob laugh. I know, uh, I know, I know. See our uh, see our Army of the Dead episode for <laughs> how much we talk about Zack Snyder just not giving a shit no word. about anybody or anything and just doing whatever the hell he wants. That that beautiful fucking maniac. <laughs> yep, yep. He's a lot yep. like John Milius in that way, in that he just 
he just is going to do whatever it is he wants to do, <laughs> to do and to hell with everybody else. I don't think he's as, as much of a gun nut, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> he, 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 he prefers weights and swords. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, like... Or like is I think it's like he's out. He, uh, there was an interview that was like, so Zack Snyder, why do you have axes mounted on your wall? Axes are cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the, the mayor. Uh, I mean, God bless him for wanting to protect his kid and all. But of all the ways to protect your kid, selling him out and then indirectly getting him executed. A plus parenting there, buddy. Yeah, and of course the thing that's. Oh, sorry, Robert. No, I was going to say, and of course it's is you know. The perfect casting with Lane Smith because he plays a good prick, a good conniving prick, you know, saying, God bless Lane Smith because he's an incredible actor, but he was really good at playing slimy pricks. The thing that sells it most for me is when he says to the guys, oh, he's a politician. He's like me. And that immediately lets you know what you're in for with Daryl. That's the immediately first like, oh, oh geez, this kid is going to be a problem for these guys later. I just feel it. Even more so like, than like the fight that he gets in around the uh, fire, which where both of him and uh, Charlie Sheen almost go falling into that fire. And Swayze's just, like, casually traipsing through the open flame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, you know, that's pure Swayze. You know, Swayze's just going all for it. I mean, he's too, he's so cool he can't burn. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Nice. And Swayze's just, you know, fuck fire, man. I'm going for it. You know what I mean? God bless that man. <laughs> God bless that man so much. I, 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 I miss him so I much. I do too. I miss Patrick. I say it all the time, like, you know, I'll be sitting there, whatever movie is on that he's in, Dirty Dancing. I love Dirty Dancing. Black Dog. Um, Black Dog is great. Oh, yeah. Never seen Black Dog. Dirty Dancing is, is fantastic. I can't even find it hilarious that apparently he and Jennifer Grey were on really bad terms yes. making Red Dawn. Yeah. Leah Thompson yeah. actually said that she was surprised that they work well so well together in Dirty Dancing because they fucking hated each other making uh, this movie. And, you know, she was like, oh, I was so surprised, you know what I'm saying? Because they couldn't stand each other. I, I'm, and I, from what I hear, they really couldn't stand each other making Dirty Dancing either. There's that shot in Dirty Dancing where uh, they're doing, like, you know, the dance practices. And he runs his arm down her side. She starts laughing and he gets frustrated. And that that's not him acting. That's really Patrick Swayze getting frustrated that she keeps fucking up the shot by laughing. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, but I, I think that goes to show that Swayze was a consummate professional because um, John Leguizamo said in his autobiography that during the making of uh, Tu Wong Fu that uh, Patrick Swayze wanted to beat him up too because of all his constant improvising, you know. And it's just, <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, Patrick Swayze wanted to punch me in the head. And it's like, you know. That shows a man who's really cares about his craft, you know, when he wants to fight people, you know, for fucking up the right. movie. It, just as long as he doesn't, like, take it to the point of, like, actually fighting people, because then you're just an asshole. Uh, but. Yeah. I feel like, uh, if you haven't seen it, the movies that made a series that Netflix did had one on Dirty Dancing. And, I, and I'm not a big Dirty Dancing guy, but, Aww. like, that, that, docu that documentary about it, where they talk to all the people involved, is just amazing because they go there's they go into detail literally about the amount of times that like Patrick Swayze stormed off of set because he hated Jennifer Grey and Jennifer Grey said that she wouldn't do the movie because they were going to get Patrick Swayze but the producers wanted Patrick Swayze and how the producers had to fight to get Patrick Swayze because they wanted somebody else and and this that and the other it's a 
and how Patrick Swayze did all that all that movie with a bad knee. He'd blown out his knee. Yeah. Christ, and, that's and, and and like that is a physical goddamn performance, even by the standards of a dance heavy performance. Right. Like, well, that state wait, wait, that stage jump that he does at the end. Yes. He 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 did that like ten times. Yeah. And he just kept. And every time he hit the ground, he he would stumble or fall. There, there wasn't a crash pad for him to land on. He had to land on his feet. That's why and he did it like ten or fifteen times. That's why it right. cuts right before he lands. If you notice, you see that scene. It cuts right before he lands. Because he, he he just barely could make that landing, but he did it. But the, he did it like that many times. It shows that the man was a fucking consummate professional. If you watch, I should the, know um, um, for anyone well, listening. My mouth has been agape for the past thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you watch that, the movies that made us on on that on um, Dirty Dancing, they show you from behind the scenes footage. Somebody just had a camcorder. And they recorded the un- the unedited version of him making that jump, and it's amazing because he sticks the landing oh, like wow. the last time. He he's like, I got one more in me, and he it's just he just lands it perfectly. It's like the carry stroke at the '96 Olympics, you know, landing yeah, on um, one leg kind of thing. I'm thinking of like um, Kurt Russell nailing that basket in um, Escape from L.A., which apparently he actually did do. Yeah. Yeah, Sam first Sigourney Weaver and Alien Resurrection. Yeah. Oh, also, you mentioned Kurt Russell. That's another person who wanted to beat up John Leguizamo on the set of a movie on uh, Executive Decision because he was annoyed by all his improvisations. <laughs> John Leguizamo had a lot of people wanting to beat him up throughout his career. Huh. And as the father of a three-year-old who absolutely loves Encanto, if I have to hear we don't talk about Bruno <laughs> one more time, I'm going to beat up John Leguizamo too. <laughs> <laughs> God. I haven't seen Encanto yet, but I've had it recommended to me by like a, every oh, almost every like everybody I know, my sister, my cousins, that I need to see Encanto. I saw the tail end of it at a birthday party before seeing Turning Red, which was super charming. But we really should get back to the communism. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Central America. Uh, one of the things I really like about this movie is how effectively uh, they use that death of Harry Dean Stanton and all the others as the way to galvanize the kids. And as an adult, it's it's funny, or not? It's as funny as a mass execution can be because the guy, because as they're all lined up there, they all just start singing, uh, you know, America, America the beautiful, the beautiful. Yeah. America the beautiful, and it's like badly. They sing it badly. <laughs> they sing it angrily. They're off key. There's just an argument that Colonel Bell had them killed, not because it was supposed to be summer execution, but because he couldn't stand the singing. Yeah, which is a which is a fair point. But I feel like that scene where they where uh, Jed watches uh, Harry Dean Stanton get executed like that is really what kind of galvanizes things for the Wolverines. And I thought that absolutely. Mo- and I thought that moment was really emotionally effective, at least for me. Tremendously so. I mean, one of the things that Milius did really well in Conan, and that he does really well in Red Dawn, is to pay attention to the way that people react. You know, a- as you mentioned, when Robert kills poor Daryl, uh, Milius takes the time to showcase not only his friend's companions, the one's really his friend at that point, but the other Wolverines disgust and heartbreak at what they've at what just happened compared to his utter unfeeling like oh well now my shirt's dirty <laughs> or with 
Jed seeing Harry Dean Stanton get shot, or with Harry Dean Stanton watching his kids go, when he knows that he's probably not going to see them again, and he doesn't, which makes poor Jed having to see his father go go down all the all the worse because his dad was right. Now it's on him to avenge him. Yeah, and that, and to me, that moment takes a lot of the unintentional comedy away from the "Avenge Me, Boys" line that you get earlier in the movie. Because it's kind of like it's it's big, right? It's a huge moment. Like, and, he, and Harry Dean Stanton goes as big as Harry Dean Stanton goes uh, for it, and it's yep. It can almost be funny, but then later on we see that he knew all along he was dead. He knew all along he was yep. a dead man. Yep. He knew all along that his that his <clears throat> sons were going to be the only way that this town was going to have a prayer for anything. It was mentioned. It's interesting that you mentioned the reaction shots. One of the things I, I liked about this movie, specifically the scene that follows this one is we see lots of them using the Leah Thompson character as a honeypot to set traps. You know, she's riding the bicycle through the town. They take the big thing off of her bike, but it turns out it's just a bunch of grenades or some explosives or whatever. She comes she comes out of the Soviet-American Friendship Center and flirts with that Russian guy for a little bit. And it just and, fucking goes up. Yeah, and that's the thing I like, because we get to see uh, Bello obviously showing his disagreement with his Russian his Russian superiors about how they need to win hearts and minds and stuff. As he is there talking with the general, he has that moment where he kind of exhales the frustration. He's like, yes, general. And then just the, the whole of the, the building behind them blows up massively. Both actors visibly flinch because they were not, ex- it looks like they weren't expecting for it to blow up, which is, a, or at least not, a thing with, I, not with that much force, which is always a thing I love in a movie. If you can blow something up and scare the crap out of somebody legitimately, because uh, the general, the general like flinches and ducks, and I did it on the podcast, which is a great thing to do for an auditory medium is to do impression. <laughs> <laughs> Next stage magic. <laughs> but I, I love that part, and that's a thing I never because they both look like their scene ends, and they both look like they're kind of waiting for something to happen, but they or they're waiting for the director to call cut, and it gives it just a little bit of sustained awkwardness that I like. Like if you have a loud and, and um, virulent disagreement with your supervisor at work, how you just kind of both sit there steaming at each other in silence, and then bang, you get the the actual like, this is why I told you we should win hearts and minds. Look what just happened. They blew up our propaganda house. <laughs> yeah. But we've talked a little bit. We get these moments where the, the Russian soldiers are kind of getting humanized. How does the movie strike that balance for you? Do you feel like it, humanizes them enough to make up for the kill montages or do you think the movie's trying to have its cake and eat it too hmm the wolverines montages they're the weakest part of the film for me to the point where the middle section of the film up until powers booth shows up i think is maybe the weakest part of of the film because it becomes it, it flat it flattens things so much but what I do appreciate about Milius, the writer, is that in his humanization of the invading force, we don't get, you know, a bag of jackals or look at these innocent soldiers invading a foreign country with with with, with no kasha spelly and slaughtering civilians. You know, you, we, there, we meet some soldiers who are despicable scumbags who really, really, really need to leave Leah Thompson alone, not just because they're going to get blown up in five seconds. And then you've got that poor kid Jed shoots. You've got that, that it takes 
that even during big raiding sequences, like when they liberate the concentration camp, there's moments where the Soviet forces seem just as confused and frantic as the Wolverines are in their lowest moments. And that is where I think uh, Milius threads the needle in terms of weaving rah-rah American action and this war will devour devours souls. That's I, I think that is th- those are moments where he threads the needle. And I mean, it, like Powers Booth brings so much to the film, all the more so because even on just a purely pragmatic level, having a character who actually knows what they're doing in terms of guerrilla warfare yeah. allows for more varied action than Wolverines, British machine guns, Soviets fall over. But bringing the adults more directly into the fray, I think, pulls the film away from being this you know, flat museum piece and gives it some vitality at last today. Yeah. I, I, I like that, you know, what Milius does is that as we show, like, you know, because you, you have the Russians being, like, you know, just incredibly evil but you have Bello, you know, Ron O'Neill being, you know, the, the sympathetic one out of all of them, you know, and it, it's kind of encapsulated with him. And, you know, it shows as he gets more sympathetic, the, you know, the Wolverines get more, I guess, on the level of the Russians. Like they, you even have Matt um, when when after Daryl has discovered that he's got this tracking device in him and they're going to execute him and, and the Russian uh, soldier. You know, Matt says, what's the difference between us and them? And he says, because we live here, you know, and like, you know, that's supposed to be like, you know, the the hoorah moment. And then when it comes time to executing Daryl, he can't do it. And then Robert does it. And then it's just like, you know, now Jed sees like, oh, shit, Matt, Matt is literally right. We literally cross the threshold. Now we're the fucking monsters. You know what I'm saying? And I, I, I love that moment, you know, because it's just like, you know, that's that moment of reflection of him is like, oh, shit. You know what I'm saying? Because we just executed one of our own and Robert did it in cold blood because, you know, I don't, you know, Robert doesn't give a shit anymore. And it's just like, you know, yeah, we've we, we've literally crossed that threshold where it's just like now we're the monsters. Now we're we're no different, you know, and I love that he took that moment to like, you know, to, to showcase that, you know. Because, like like I said, Milius is not a dumb guy. He may be crazy, but he's not dumb. You know, he's a very smart guy, and he knows that, you know, in, in a point of war, those things happen where you just come conflicted with who you are as a person, and you have to do these things that are horrible in the nature of, you know, whatever, winning, freedom, whatever, you know what I'm saying? And it's just like, at what cost, you know? And that's perfectly showcased in that moment, and I really appreciate that he took the time to do that where he could have just had moments, you know, just another moment of like, yeah, Wolverines. Yeah. We're fucking good guys. And we're killing the bad guys. You know, it's like, no, uh, I really want you to think about this shit in in this preposterous fantasy. I created, you know, for the world to see, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because it feels like there's a constant escalation as the movie goes on. Yeah. Where our first fight is, you know, a guy gets shot in the butt with an arrow. And it's and he's like begging for help, but it's in a kind of a funny way because he's shot in the butt with an arrow. And then, you know, he Jennifer Grey accidentally kills him. 
basically, because she picked up the machine gun by the handle and squeezed the trigger and fired off a few rounds that hit him. With uh, Tanner showing up, that kind of kicks off an escalation. They start doing bigger things, they start having bigger plots, and that kicks up a, a further escalation on the half of the Russians. It's The whole thing is like, we started out throwing rocks, now we're going to throw nukes. It's they just keep getting things keep getting bigger and bigger, and the the scope of the Wolverines and the scope of the Russian efforts trying to stop them just keeps getting bigger and bigger until it stops being let's hunt down these eight kids or whatever that are stuck out in the the, the woods, and it becomes we're not just going to send out three guys in a jeep, we're going to send out some attack helicopters, yeah, and we're going to set traps, and it feels like this is the point of the movie where. Between the the attack on the concentration camp, feels like the most raw raw part of the movie. Yeah, because they're like throwing guns on the back of a truck and arming all these prisoners, and the Basil Polidorus music is just blasting your face off in the background. And Miller's you're gonna really die. S- I die on your feet. Yeah, yeah. Jinjet is screaming like, "Yeah, we're all gonna die. You're gonna die. Die on your feet. Not like a man." He's saying shit, and it's like, "Oh yeah, okay, buddy." And but, then things go right to hell. Yeah. Well, that's Milius setting us up, right? He's like, look how good this is going. Oh, wait, you thought this was going good? Now Aardvark's going to die. Now Tanner's going to die. And now they're going to realize, oh, this isn't just us hiding out in the woods shooting at, at deer that happen to be Russian guys. This is like a legitimate thing. And, and there aren't any civilian reprisals anymore. Because they're going to spend all the energy and all those bullets and all that planning to try to catch and kill us. Wait, can, can I just point out that the, the first Wolverine they kill is the Latino? <laughs> yep. That's, that sure is. Yeah, I, sure yeah, is. I, I, uh, I definitely felt that, you know, being a Latino myself is like, okay, okay, the first Wolverine you kill is the Latino. The, the only don't uh, naturally he not naturally he gets like no story of his own. He's just like the guy who is there. Yeah, he's he's the, he's the single minority they have in a group, and he just gets killed, and then that's it. You know, <laughs> you know. Uh, thanks a lot, Milius. It feels yep. like if they made this movie now in that part of what's supposed to be Colorado, you would have to have at least a quarter of the group to be Latino. Yeah, just based I mean, off I, of how I, the demographics what I, like, have shifted so read, hard in that state. Uh, like from what I've read, like there was a substantial Latino population in Colorado in the '80s as well. Like, and, I, and like, part of the reason they said it in Colorado is because they were shooting in New Mexico, which has a gargantuan Latino population, and they wanted a reason to not have more Latino actors, which is which is crazy. A choice. Because they're they're not that. I guess they wanted to save all the Latino actors to make them play uh, Nicaraguans and Cubans and Russians because I saw some very Latino Russians. Russians. Mm-hmm. I guess they just decided, all right, this is, you guys will just all be the bad guys because it's the 80s and that's what happens to Latinos in the 80s unless they're the hero. I, I have no comment on that. <laughs> Count on Hollywood to fail and fail massively. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just surprised they didn't have one, one black kid in the movie to be the first guy to get shot. Just that that is true I mean, because they, of the time period. Yeah, yeah. and it's I, um, one of the things that like I find fascinating about the way Red Dawn handles handles its violence and handles its war story is uh, is again the tension between the early images of raw raw heroism. Look at these kids go, and then you know Milius the student of history Milius the 
fan of artfully depicted brutality. It's like, no, these are teenagers with guns against the fucking Spetsnaz. They're dead and they don't know it. Like, the scale of what they accomplish is, at best, they, you know, like, the most successful thing they do is liberate a concentration camp, which is tremendously heroic, and also it's one concentration camp in the middle of a massive occupied territory in an ongoing war, and as much as Basil Poldor's score pumps up the heroic actions, they accomplish very little at tremendous cost, and um, you know, there comes a point where Swayze, where Swayze, Swayze realizes, like, this is done, we've lost, and I need to try and find a way to get to keep some of us alive somehow, and I'm not going to be one of the people who lives. One of the things that makes me it, I, I'm, I'm like super curious if Milius had somehow seen Army of Shadows, which was not widely seen in the U.S. until the, the mid 2000s, I think, because there there is a decided similarity there between the moral necessity of resisting not the occupation of France and the fact that any one resistance cell would, on their own, essentially be ineffectual, and the cost would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. I and mean, like. Army of Shadows and Red Dawn, not really comparable in any other way, aside from being <laughs> movies set, set in wartime, focusing on tiny resi- resistance cells. But there is a bleakness to Red Dawn that all the bombastic music and heroic montages cannot erase. And once Milius has gotten the heroic montages that make the studios happy, the man goes all in on that bleakness. Like mm. The last act is... That is a that is grim yeah. for a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, because the gunships, like three helicopters, swoop in and gun down Robert and Tony. Basically, it's like the attack on the concentration camp was the last successful thing that the Wolverines were able to do, and after that, it's just death by a thousand cuts, death by exhaustion, death by. At, at this point, they've been doing this for months. They've been living. They've been living rough. They have to be exhausted and hungry and starting to get malnourished because there's only so much. You know, there's only so many vitamins you can get scraping moss From off a of deer. rocks in December in the Rocky Mountains. It's not exactly. You know, when they started this movie in September, I was like, oh, you would think Russia would be smarter than that because they know how not to do a <laughs> a war in winter. They know what happens when you invade a place in winter. And you're attacking Colorado way too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and then y- we couldn't have that cozy Christmas scene. <laughs> and yet we also saw them attack Ukraine in real life in the middle of mud season. So maybe I'm overestimating the uh, the brains behind the, the <laughs> Russian military in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, 30 years and a whole different rancid ideology, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But yeah, we st- that everything starts going bad, and then we get to the very the last moment where everyone's just about had enough. You've got the you've got Robert, uh, you've got uh, Robert executing Daryl for his sudden yet inevitable betrayal. You've got Jed executing the Russian soldier, and then you've got the big setup for the suicide mission where where Matt and Jed have basically decided we can't do this anymore. It's Blaze of Glory time. It's the end of Young Guns. Hmm. Is it Young Guns 2? I forget. I mean, Ben Johnson, the end of the Wild Bunch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good pull. Yeah, it's the it's the very last. Uh, everybody's going to die, and we're going to take as many people with us, and we're going to keep them busy in town so you guys can 
ride your horses across no man's land and get back to the safety of Kansas, I believe. And you get a lot of the boys echoing like their dead father's last words, and you've got a lot of Colonel Bellow being like, this is not what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. I'm I'm killing innocent people because of what their kids are doing, and it's like eight kids out in the woods, and they've killed dozens of people, and we can't stop them. But then when we do kill them, we realize this is like a... We just shot children. This is like a 15 or 16-year-old girl. This is like a 15-year-old boy. These are not adults. These are not fighters. These are just kids trying to do anything to keep living and to get us off of this land. I am a revolutionary. I am for the people. And what I am doing is the exact opposite of everything I believe in. So you get that nice moment of Bello humanizing himself and watching it now as an adult. I really, I see a lot in Ron O'Neill's performance when he's writing that letter and doing that voiceover that I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, props to Milius for like the majority of the Russian and Cuban act and, and Cuban characters speaking Russian or Spanish for the majority of their screen time and not sticking us with aggressive accenting mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i absolutely detest that trope of well this is supposed to be a russian character so he speak english like this he talking in the in the broad accent and the, this is how uh this this is how you know that he is russian speaking russian he is talking like this <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah the or you could do it the smart way like mctiernan did it in hunt for red october where they, they're they're speaking uh in in english but he basically transposed it to the way that basically they're they're talking in Russian, but he the way he trans you know he shot it is that they're supposed to be speaking to Russian to each other, but you know we hear it in English, you know. Yeah, and Warrior does that too, which yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's such a good fucking show. Yeah, this gets us, but this gets us toward the end of our movie where the boys go down in their blaze of glory and we get some of the craziest action sequences in the film. Uh, what do you guys think of this final attack? I think it's pretty bombastic. I think it's I think it's successful in part because at this point they've whittled down the Wolverines to just the Eckert brothers, so we can follow two distinct protagonists as opposed to just the Wolverines as a cluster, and that we have we actually have our main play our our main protagonist and antagonist in the same space. So there's an opportunity for those intimate moments like Jed getting dropped and then getting fatally wounded by the Spetsots Colonel in their sh- in, in that great gun down. Yeah. Yeah. And like the the cast hurting is part of what makes the montages weak for me that it's just like the Wolverines and the Russians. And then in the final sequence we have Jed confronting the Spetsot Colonel. Colonel Bella confronting the brothers, the Russian general going up like a Roman candle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a specificity that that makes the sequence work better for me. This it, it it reminds me of Conan's action sequences, like that terrific moment when they're raiding Thulsa Doom's lair, and one of his generals realizes that Conan somehow fucking walked off being crucified, and just goes, "You, yeah, that." I think it's because you get to see faces, and I think that really exactly. makes the big difference. That's actually, and it's exactly. a, that's actually my mother's favorite scene in Conan, by the way, is uh, that, <laughs> the, you, and like, you know, Arnold in the in the, the paint, the war paint. Yes. Yeah, that's my mother's favorite scene um, in that movie. Your mother has good taste. Thank you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of this final action sequence. The only thing that disappoints me in hindsight is the dude on fire. He's not on fire enough. <laughs> like, he's no, just no. running through the scene with one arm on fire. I feel like you got to go full swamp thing and just have the dude completely, like... If you have a burning man, make him a burning man. Yeah, yeah. don't send him to burning man. Just send him <laughs> Oh man, like that would be something like Red Dawn of present day. Putin's Russia attacks Burning Man. Yeah, isn't that just like Mad Max? <laughs> I mean, uh, like they already kind of have that. Like, um, is it Wasteland Weekend, which is the semi-official Mad Max con, where a whole bunch of Mad Max vehicle hobbyists go out in the desert for a weekend? Nice. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> I had a friend who went once. Apparently, it was a lot. I can imagine that. I can imagine. Uh, but yeah, we get to we get that. That that, fight, that execution of um, the Russian KGB colonel, where he finally gets to use his grandfather's gun. And he, I noticed that he fanned the revolver, which is not the way you want to do that. But um, I guess if it works, it works. And, you know, rule of cool and all that. I mean, like, this is not exactly Michael Mann or Michael Bay's Red Dawn. And those dudes are, like, famously obsessive about, gu- about gun usage. Yeah. Like, Milius, he likes guns a lot. He isn't as big on the process i suppose or at least red dawn the film is not as concerned with the mechanics of proper firearm usage as it is here is jennifer gray with a belt fed machine gun yeah i can see that but i will say you can tell which actors put in the work practicing with the firearms and which actor didn't Mm -hmm. Hmm. no i like that i like that and that that climactic sequence you know, you know, I I I don't have a problem with bummer endings that most people do. Bummer endings is just like, uh, yeah, I I could you know, because sometimes life is a big old fucking bummer, you know. So I could I could see that being a reflection, you know. Like I I like that it, it with, with Jed and Matt. There there's a part of them that knows that you know there there's some part of them that knows that feels like we can make it, but then you know the the smart part knows that. Yeah, we're we're going to die. We're going to die here, bro. And I said, I, I love you, Maddie. I love you too, Jed. Because it's like, yeah, we're 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 probably not going to make it out of here, bro. But you know, whatever. We're going to do what we can, and you know, we'll we'll see what fucking happens. You know, and yeah, like like Ron was saying, it's 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 brave to just end a movie like this. You know, what I'm saying like, you know, that 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 one like after. They've both been shot, and and Jed carries Matt to the playground where they used to play as kids. And he's like, "Oh, we're almost home, Maddie." He said, like, "I'm so tired. I'm so very tired." You know, and it's like those are probably his last words. You know, mm-hmm. and and just it's just imagine trying to end a movie like that nowadays. They'll fucking oh, the it, studio will fucking crucify you. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You got to end it with I mean, happy. You know, saying them smiling, the birds chirping, and the sun shining. You know, yeah, like. I never saw the uh, Hemsworth Red Dawn, but from what I understand, it's like the war continues, and in this case, like no, our the only people who get a semi not horrid ending in this film are Bella, who's getting the fuck out of Dodge, yes. or yes. Chalamet, as about, uh, uh, or Chalamet as the case may be, and Jennifer Grey and the generic Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. And even even with the studio mandated, and the U- the U.S. did win the war. Milius goes out of his way to like the war was won. The Wolverines did nothing of nothing of consequence. <laughs> yeah, you know, because because you know, war. What the fuck is war anyway? You know what I'm saying? It's like, like yeah, it, it was eventually won. You know, but you know, 
look, look, you know, look, look what it took to get us there. Look what it took to get us to the fucking win. You know, the, the, the death of the innocent kids, you know what I'm saying? They, they became fucking monsters in the end and shit. And, you know, they died horribly in the cold, bleeding to death in this, this torrid winter. And, you know, yeah, you know, that's all war. Of this for a t- all of this for a town of like a hundred people. Exactly. <laughs> and, like a town, like, like we don't spend a whole lot of time in pre-invasion Chalamet, but there are, there are visual implications that it is a town on its way out. Because, yeah. you know, the football, like, Jed razzes his brother about the fact that the football team got fucking routed and they haven't even br- been able to bring themselves to take down the very embarrassing score. Yeah. The, the few buildings we see are in not great shape and the sporting goods store is selling Capri Sun for some reason, <laughs> which, one, I'm kind of shocked that the Capri Sun's logo has remained so constant for so long. This is a movie made in 1984. <laughs> And that logo was the same when I was in school in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. To, like, if your sporting goods store is selling, like, not just camping goods, but full-on dry goods, there, there there was probably another store that closed down that you absorbed their inventory and were trying to get rid of it. Yeah, I feel like those, uh, that, that when the hero shot of that Cannon Campbell's soup, that soup had some dust <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So we get to the end of the movie. We get our little uh, our our voiceover about how Partisan Rock is dedicated to the Wolverines, and we get the American flag flying, and we get our heroic music playing, and we get the uh, black and white publicity stills I mentioned as we come to the end of our movie. <laughs> and as such, we are going to come to the end of our podcast where we give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. Those of you unfamiliar, you can rate a movie on a popcorn scale of extra small to extra large. You can have any kind of modifiers in there you want. You know, we've had small and burnt. We've had um, extra large but dry. We've had large and buttery. We've had, um, you know, extra small burnt with hair in it, I think. Any kind of, like, any kind of thing you kind of feel about the movie can be expressed via the magic of popcorn. Because Rob is experienced with our show, he will be the guy who goes first. Rob, what are your final thoughts, recommendations, and your popcorn rating? for red dawn uh yes i definitely recommend red dawn if you're looking for uh you know just a really fun preposterous um 80s action flick um with with nice uh, sentimental moments uh courtesy of uh the great john milius the great crazy john milius um with, a, with an excellent cast and you know it's a fine time war sequences and um, as far as rating, I would give this a large popcorn with a little extra butter. All right, sounds great. Justin, what are your final thoughts and your popcorn rating for Red Dawn? My final thoughts, like, of the two full Milius directed films I've seen, this is the weaker between this and Conan. <laughs> yeah. As I've said, the montages just do not do very much for me. And I think that I... I, I, I th- Weird enough for like a group that is by design small, I think that we could probably have trimmed a member or two off of the Wolverines just because there a few of them are, are there to be bodies, and that it, it's noticeable when the, when when the majority of the ensemble have such strong sequences dedicated to letting the actors work with what they have. But as flat as parts of it fall for me, the human element soars when it soars, and like the grown-ups are just so damn fantastic. Ron O'Neill is mm-hmm. excellent. Harry Dean Stanton is 
perhaps the most memorable thing in the film, and he's got two full scenes. And you know, Powers Booth, we didn't we didn't talk about him a whole lot, but one like Patrick Swayze, I fucking miss Powers Booth. Yes. Yeah. And the way the gro- the way the grown characters react to this guerrilla movement run by children is I think the most dramatically interesting thing in the film. And I gotta give it credit for within the constraints of the ultra jingoistic movie uh, of the ultra, uh, ultra of the ultra jingoistic like kill the reds movie. I gotta give it credit for the humanity it slips Milius and company slip in there. So yeah. I'm gonna give it like a medium large popcorn. Some of it's dry, but a lot of it's quite a lot of it's fresh and crunchy and delicious. I will give Red Dawn a large popcorn. I really like this movie. I liked it for the action stuff when I was a kid, and I like it a lot for those human moments. And now that I'm an adult, while still retaining some of the enjoyment for the action stuff, because it's hard not to just be happy with Leah Thompson like firing a machine gun, or you know Patrick Swayze hooking bombs like footballs through windows, and Powers Booth showing up and throwing that glass of booze under the fire to simulate the nuking of China. I thought that's one of my favorite moments in the movie where that fire bursts up and all the kids jump back because you, <laughs> you can see them having been uh, caught by surprise by that little move. I will follow along with the group and we will do a large popcorn. And so on that note, once again, we'll get to our plug section. Rob, tell the people where they can find you. Of course, uh, you can find me at, at the Cinedrunky on Twitter. That's my personal Twitter, as well as at Cinema Drunkies, which is the official Twitter. My podcast, the Cinema Drunkies. Big shout out to my brother from another Mac the All Star, that you can find at Mac the All Star on Twitter. And um, shout out to all our, our, our dear, dear friends in Action Twitter Mike Scott, uh, Matt Asari, Patrick Bartlett, Chris Barreras. you know, all, all, the, all, the, all the great, great people that we associate with and just, you know, make it make our time on social media that much more better because you know social media is a fucking war zone hell zone whatever the fuck you want to call it and it makes me want to quit but you know and you ron and you justin you know what i'm saying and all you guys just make it so much tolerable i would have left a long time ago if it wasn't for you guys so i appreciate you all and a shout out to you all and yeah that's 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 my plugs Justin, what do you got to plug? First off, cheers to you, Rob, and cheers to you, Ron. You are both excellent gentlemen. It's been a pleasure to be here and to be part of the larger Action Twitter community, which is by and large good folks and can always use more of those. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in my writing, you can find me at The Spool, which is a rising Chicago-based film website. Uh, my most recent work for them was a review of the excellent action anime Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, which also features teenagers at war, but with fewer Soviets and a different horrible trauma. I'm going to have a piece on the Halo series up soon, which I found pleasantly surprising. And I am the point man for the school's ongoing filmmaker of the month series. We're doing Jane Campion this month and someone exciting next month who I'm looking for, who I think action Twitter will get a lot out of for that part, for, the, for that part. You can find my comics writing at AIPT and my longer form essays at Neotext and other a few other places. I'm on Twitter at J Sean S E A N Harrison, which also has um, a link to all my writing. I, I don't tweet super often. Mostly, it's uh, retweets or occasional observations and or dumb jokes. 
but I'm around. I'm around. Hey, that. And as always, you can find all of my writing over at Den of Geek. I am in the midst of Walking Dead coverage right now, and also wrapping up coverage of Snowpiercer, and I will undoubtedly have more things coming down the pike by the time this is released. I don't know what those will be yet. As always, uh, you can support the show by giving us ratings on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow the show on social media at Filmstrip on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that good stuff. Uh, you can find us there. Like, rate, and subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell the Russian. Tell whoever you want to check us out if you think they'll like us. And if you think they won't like us, maybe keep it to yourself. <laughs> negativity to go around on social media yes. without getting that. For my guests, Rob and Justin, I am Ron. Thank you very much for listening to Filmstrip. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.